Thank you, Sai. How's the 10 a.m. doing? We're all good. I am excited to get into a, a, a new series. Uh, I hope my voice is going to get through the day. Uh, we were at a birthday last night where there was karaoke sung. And so uh, it's very different to go from uh, me and Taryn and Sai singing Backstreet Boys um, to this morning lifting up the Lord's name in His house. It's all worship though. We can even have fun with Jesus. Um, but we're jumping into this series. And as Sai mentioned, it's called First Things. And uh, it's really taking a look at God's perspective on our priorities. I, I don't know if you know, we're nearly at the end of the year. This year is gone. It went quick. Where it went, we don't know. But we get into this odd zone of knowing that we're wrapping up a year, winding up a year, but at the same time, 2023 is knocking on the door. And we start to do this thing as humans where we begin to reprioritize things. And we know it comes in the form of New Year's resolutions where we start to say, we need to prioritize our health. We need to prioritize family. We need to prioritize our work. We start to set goals for ourselves. But on the front end, even now in November, as our minds are starting to shift and move into that season, we thought it would be really helpful to have a discussion, have a conversation around God's perspective on our priorities. Because I really do believe that if we can have a godly perspective on our priorities, the list we write, the priorities we make, the resolutions we come to come January are probably going to look very different. Because what we value sometimes goes against where God values. I wonder if we wrote our list now versus writing our list then, would things change in its order? Would there be some things that need to get added onto the list or would there be some things that need to be removed? And the first thing I want to take a look at this, uh, this week is prioritizing the voice of God. I've given it the title, Hear and Obey the Voice of God. Of God. And this is so important because if you think about it, we'll make our list of priorities one to five, whatever they are, we rank them. And when you talk about the voice of God, there will be good things on the list, but the voice of God, hearing it, discerning it, obeying it is so important because it's not just the thing we should put number one on the list, it is actually the thing that is going to help be the grid and the filter for what our list looks like. That's why it's so important that we get this right as we get our minds around God's perspective on our priorities. And so I really do hope that uh, we'll be having a conversation around what is gonna help us and what will hinder us in hearing God's voice, not just hearing it, discerning it, knowing what it means, getting clarity on it, and then most importantly, moving in obedience based on that. Today's goal is gonna be a, di a diagnosis of where we're at. Where's our relationship with God? Are we hearing His voice? Are we moving uh, in His voice? Are, are we setting ourselves up in a strong foundation, sure foundation, firm foundation, so that we wind up a year and go into a new year with a perspective on His priorities? Um, I'm going to start off uh, with a golf story. I haven't done a golf story for a while in a preach, so I thought I'd give you one. Um, there's an old golf story, and I actually got to physically witness it at a golf day, which was crazy cool. Um, because we know this, that voices are important because voices often will shape our action, either in our rejection of them or in us listening to that voice. And so we were in the midst of this golf day. Our four ball was ready. We were next on the tee. If you've never been to a golf day, don't know anything about golf, let me tell you the, 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 the picture. You have a bunch of guys get it gathered around, getting ready to watch some other oaks hit a little white ball down a fairway. But as a golfer, 
you know that a golf day is a serious thing. And so you do your prep on the front end, you buy a new glove, you buy some brand new golf balls, they're very expensive. And so you care a lot more about them because losing that ball is gonna hurt. And so what you, every golfer will do in the midst of the fear that comes in front of uh, a big crowd of people about to uh, hit a drive is you have one ball in your pocket, which is your new nice ball, and you have another ball in your other pocket that is an old ball that you don't mind losing. Because you know you need a backup plan. Now, we get to our four ball. Our first guy gets his chance to go. He gets set up. He gets ready. The crowd is watching. You can feel the nerves starting to go. And as he walks up, he's got the new ball in hand. But last minute, he chickens out, and he switches balls, and he puts down his old ball. Now, everyone can see it. Everyone knows what the story is because we all have a new ball and an old ball in our pockets. But as if a voice from heaven shouts out, hit the new ball. And he gets flustered because now he realizes he's found out. Everyone saw it. And so he very quickly switches to a brand new Titleist Pro V1. It's like a 70 rand ball. Trust me, it is not the ball you want to hit into the, like the trees, the, the depth. You don't want to lose this ball. But he puts it down with confidence and he lines up to hit his shot. Voice comes again. Take a practice swing. He listens. Again, a bit flustered. He shifts back, gives himself some space and unloads a practice swing. And then things get awkward because the last thing, last time the voice comes, it says, hit the old ball. <laughs> Voices will shape our actions, whether we're going to reject them or obey them. And when we talk about the voice of God, my question is, are we hearing it? Are we discerning it? And most importantly, are we going to be a people who obey it? Will we make the voice of God a priority for ourselves? So the big question, what's gonna help us, what's gonna hinder us in hearing and obeying God's voice? I'm gonna take you to a passage in 2 Kings chapter six. Um, it's such an obscure, random little passage. You'll see it when we read it. Um, but I, this is actually a, a, a passage that I shared in a staff devotion in 2020. So this is like a message that's two years in the making. So it's gonna be good. Um, I hope you get a lot out of it. it. It's something that is gonna speak to us. It says this from verse one. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, each, one of, us, each of us there, get a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water and he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and he threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Why don't you pray with me? Father God, I, again, I'm just so struck that you are the God who is always speaking to us that you have truth, you have wisdom, you have grace, you have mercy for us, and you've shared it with us through your word. You've shared it by the power of your spirit. You've shared it through your church. You've shared it through Jesus. And it's my prayer, even as we're in this random story about an ax head that gets recovered, I pray that you would speak deeply to our hearts, that Lord, we would be a people who prioritize your voice over all others, that we would be a people who discern your voice and the truth of it. And that most importantly, Lord, we would be filled with the Spirit, 
full of courage to be able to walk out and obey your commands as you call. Jesus, we wanna be a people who are always fighting for you, pursuing you, caring for you, and caring about the things that you care about. I pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. I'll give you some context around this passage. Uh, It's found in the midst, and this is why I say it's a bit obscure and a bit random. It kind of gets plugged into what is actually a pretty historical record of what was happening for the nation of Israel in 2 Kings. And so you have stories around how they were warring against uh, the nation of Syria, and and you see a few miracles along the way. But right in the middle, in the beginning of chapter 6, you have this random passage thrown in talking about these sons of the prophets who, and, and Elisha who performs this miracle, making an axe head float. And in the obscurity of it, what you need to know is that at this time, the nation of Israel was spiritually being led by Elisha. Uh, what, who had come before him was a guy called Elijah, the, the, the prophet of prophets in the Old Testament. And so the spiritual leadership of, uh, of Israel has now passed on to Elisha. And he is as the primary prophet of Israel, leading the people by hearing from God, sharing his truth with them, and they are being walked out into what God would have them do. Now, we know that his ministry as the prophet, as this primary prophet, is actually gaining traction. He, we're seeing growth. There's an acceleration in what is happening because he's even um, planting ministries and schools where prophets would be taught and the gift of prophecy would actually carry on and grow and accelerate. It is a good and holy endeavor. And this phrase that comes out in the passage, the sons of the prophets, we see multiple times in the Old Testament. And what I don't want you to think is that these were simple like students, interns, not really um, big on the totem pole. They're actually, as sons of the prophets, was a term that they were prophets in their own right, accompanying Elisha as he has been called by the purpose of God to lead the nation of Israel. And so they held a high office in that they were hearing the voice of God, sharing it with the people so that the nation could be led in the things of God. It was a big deal and it was going well. Now, as we look through this passage, I actually wanna ask five questions as we get through each verse. And I think these questions are gonna help highlight what will help and what will hinder us hearing and obeying God's voice. First question is this, are we making God small? It's proportional. Small vision will be equated to a small view of God. But when we're talking about the big God, creator of the universe, the one who calls, the one who performs miracles, the one whose spirit carries all, then we're called to big vision and big faith. And we see it in these prophets. They say, see, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. In both function and heart, in both function and heart, they were exhibiting this devotion that they had for God a devotion to his kingdom, a devotion to his people, a devotion to his purposes that they had all been called to. Now, maybe because we've gone into like, we're talking about sons of the prophets and the gift of prophecy, you've now checked out of the conversation, dunks, I am not one of those. I'm not a prophet, I'm not called to it. I don't have the gift of prophecy, whatever it looks like. You might not be called to the gift of prophecy. You might be not called to uh, the function or the office of a prophet. In the same way that our last series was a leadership series where we said, hey, leadership is not just for those in position and status, but those who hold influence, which is all of us. 
I want to say to you, one of the main actions of a prophet is to hear the voice of God, to discern it, to obey it, and to share it with others. And who is exempt from that action? None of us. And so it's so important that as we look at what happened with these prophets, it has got much to teach us about helping and hindering us in hearing and obeying God's voice. A couple of things I wanna highlight. First thing I wanna highlight about these guys is we see them exhibit this, that they, it was about faith and not feeling for them. What these men are moved by is not a good idea. What they're moved by is not a, a, a motivation to seek new comfort. When they say this space is too small for us, they're not saying, hey, this dwelling space isn't comfortable enough, we're getting crammed in, which we all know that feeling. You know you can be in a claustrophobic space, feels like we need a bit more comfort, feels like we don't have enough space where we're living. That was not their motivation. Their motivation actually was this has become too small for us and actually it's going to start hampering the growth of the ministry and the purpose God called us to. And so we need a bigger space to dwell so that there can now be not a desire for comfort, but more impact. I wonder if we would be a people like this, where we would put priority on the purpose and the role and the function that God has called us to. And we would place it above comfort. Because I want you to know, they do build bigger dwellings, but they're not lavish, fancy, hardcore, comfortable things. They are purely serving the function and the purpose God had called. And so they'll build wooden huts next to the Jordan River. But their heart is the purpose God had called them to. Their heart is actually that people are being changed and transformed and led by the voice of God. This is a good work, a holy work. And we don't want to see it stunted in its growth. We want to see it magnified in its progress and growth. The question for us is then, are we moved more by feeling or by faith? These men had faith that God had called them and he called them to something that would increase and would grow and be magnified. They weren't called by feeling that said, hey, this isn't that comfortable. We're kind of all crammed in here. Being with a bunch of oaks doesn't smell great, look great, feel great. They had a much higher calling, a much higher view. And I wonder how many times we make decisions, we pick a path based on faith, not feeling. Second question it asks is when we do move in faith, is our faith too small? Because what we always find in scripture what we always find in God working with his people and calling them into purpose and calling them into advancing his kingdom is that there is always more. There is always a greater progression. But the faith that he starts in us, he will grow. And so when we take a faith step, I wonder if we hold back a bit. I wonder if our vision, our faith for what God is calling us to is too small going into 2023. As you start to seek God, as you start to prioritize his voice, I would start to question, is my faith big enough? Is the vision matching the God who is calling me to it? Little sidebar here. I don't ever want us to confuse big faith with dumb risk. Because God in the midst of calling us to big scary things, he's a big God, he calls us to big faith. God also gives us wisdom in the midst of it. And so we can be maverick about it, lone ranger, gun ho, jump the gun, let's go, jump and God will catch me. But big faith says, hey, God said I will jump. 
the difference in big faith versus dumb risk, big faith is a response to the call of God. Dumb risk just jumps and hopes God catches us on the other side. A great picture of that is the apostle Peter. He's on a boat with the disciples. Jesus comes walking in the midst of a storm, walking on the water. And he cries out to Jesus and says, call me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. And he steps out the boat and begins to walk on the water. And we know how the story goes. And most of us, even preachers like me, will stand on the stage and be like, do you know this, the faith it took to step out the boat? It's big faith. That's correct. That's right. But do we forget that it was an answer and a response to Jesus' word? Big faith is going to respond to the call of God. It's going to be big. It's going to be scary. It's walking on water type of stuff. But it is in response to Jesus. Even Jesus said in Luke 14, 28, that there is wisdom in the midst of our faith and our faith steps. He said, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? He understands that there is this tension and balance that we have to hold where we actually say, hey, there is wisdom in counting the cost and responding to God in big faith. It's so important that we do not miss it. There is no value in dumb risk. But how much value is there in obedience to God's voice? Second question. Are we making cloudy what is clear? Verse two, they come to him with a, a suggestion, an option, a priority, a plan. They say, let us go to the Jordan, each of us there, log, and, make a, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And Elisha answers one word, go. I hope you see the clarity in the answer. I hope you have not missed the clearness of the instruction and the command. They inquire, he responds. Couple things I wanna highlight. I wanna highlight this idea of holy inquiry. Sometimes we know as humans we can jump the gun where we will make a decision, we'll take our next step. And if we're honest, the voice of God never even entered the equation. But what do these sons of the prophets do? As they've identified a problem and come up with, come up with a plan and a solution, they go inquire of Elisha, the one who has charge over them, authority over them. And they make that inquiry. And he gives an answer and his answer is clear. Now, I want you to understand, I do believe God gives us wisdom and freedom to choose, to decide, to walk. But God calls us to also hold intention with that freedom, godly wisdom that leads us. Can I tell you, if we hold that tension, godly wisdom can only come through holy inquiry. I don't want us to misunderstand. I don't want anyone to mishear me. But I want you to know that the freedom God gives us in that he has given us biblical boundaries and principles which are actually a wide open field. Which actually means that you and me have a lot of decisions in life, big decisions, where there are multiple options and actually all of them could fall within the will of God. 
We sometimes fall for the trap that says, hey, God has one plan and one door that I have to walk through. And if I don't walk through that door, I've messed it up. It's aborted everything. Can I tell you, that's not how God works. God gives us very clear boundaries and principles. And he gives us freedom to choose. He gives us freedom to walk and to decide and to go his way. But he also gives us godly wisdom that helps us inquire of him so that we aren't led astray. And so there'll be situations where there's door A and door B. And God's answer to us would be, hey, go either way. I don't mind. I know what I'm doing on the other side. The question for me in how we hold the tension is are we willing to inquire of God so that he can give a no? Because I don't know about you, but I've had many situations where there's a decision, there's an opportunity, there's something that's come up. And I've gone to God and said, God, here's the two options. Here's the pros, here's the cons. Here's where my heart's at. Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And the answer I get is, And I'm held by the fact that there are situations where God will say, hey, I have given you freedom to choose between either because they are both within the boundaries that I have for you. Understand my purposes are far bigger than that. God is far less worried about where you work and what work you do and far more worried about who you are and how you are at that work. That's what he's about in terms of his purpose and impact. And so it's really important that we hold this intention because if we are not a people that, if we're a people that just live in the freedom, we're gonna go astray. But if we're a people who understand the freedom we have in that God has, has given us opportunities and desires and he calls us to different things and different purposes, but we also know he's given us godly wisdom when we're called to inquire, we get it wrong when we don't inquire, when we don't let him say no. Joshua chapter nine is a great example of when that non-inquiry led to great strife. In Joshua chapter nine, Joshua is leading the nation of Israel and it's known as the Gibeonite deception. Basically, the Gibeonites were a neighboring people and they deceived the nation of Israel. They, they passed themselves off as a foreign distant people and they go into a covenant with Israel. But verse 14 in Joshua 9 says this, so the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. There's freedom. They had made covenants with other people. There's, there's a decision that can be made. But godly wisdom goes out the door because there's no holy inquiry made where God will say, no, it's deception. They did not seek the counsel of the Lord. And it leads them down a road to where they're locked into a covenant that they have to honor, but that is actually gonna cost them much. It's a, it's a tension we always have to be holding. And so we can never be a people who think that I will make cloudy what is clear because God has made clear his boundaries. He's made clear what he wants me to do, where he wants me to go and then know that actually there is some freedom within those boundaries. The question should be, are we a people who inquire of God or not? Are we a people who give God the, the opportunity to say no? Because just as there'll be those moments where there's option A and option B and God doesn't really answer and there's freedom to choose, I know of the situations where I've been like, God, here's an opportunity. I'm dead keen on it. What do you think? 
And he goes, no. And hindsight has always proved that God has protected us in that moment. God's protected us in that moment. Second thing I wanna highlight in the midst of this is holy timing. When we inquire of God, we don't just ask the what question, we should ask the when question. Because God's will for our lives doesn't just have a what, it has a when. Sometimes it is now, sometimes it's soon, sometimes it's later. The right thing at the wrong time will still be the wrong thing. For these guys, they get a very clear answer from Elijah. Yes, go, it's clear, it's certain. And thankfully, they're wise, they're obedient, they immediately begin to action on the clear answer they've received. But I question, would we move so quick? Would we be the ones who even when we have what is clear from God, clear in his word, clear in his instruction, clear in what he's calling us to, how often will in the midst of that clarity, will we seek to make it cloudy by saying, you know what, we, and we do these things, we make the excuses, hey, you know what, I'm gonna, I, I, we're not all on board, I'm gonna wait for unity on this matter. Maybe, if, maybe it's not 100% clear, we'll wait for God to give us another sign. Can I tell you, if God has given you a clear answer, if there is clarity on what we should be doing, what we should be about, where we should be going, and we don't go, we move into disobedience. If the prophets had got their clear answer from Elisha, go, and they sat around and had a committee meeting to decide what that meant, they would move into disobedience because the answer was clear and they obey. Question number three, are we going alone or are we going together? They continue in verse three, they actually ask, be pleased to go with your servants. And then Elisha responds and says, I will go. There are three primary ways that we hear the voice of God. Number one, his word. Number two, by his spirit. And number three, by wise counsel. They sought wise counsel in the midst of walking out and moving forward in the purpose that God had for them. Their wisdom shines through because as they took on this good endeavor, this godly endeavor to build these new dwellings, how wise is it to bring along our leader, the one who has charge over us, so that now we have access to Elisha's gifting, Elisha's leadership, Elisha's experience, and he gets to go with us. When it comes to God calling us, when it comes to God moving in purpose in our life, I want you to know he calls us to people, but he often always calls us to do it with people. There are very few people who get an individual call. Very few of us are gonna be Abraham that gets called out of an enemy people and he says, out of you alone will I make a new people. For most of us, the picture will look like we are doing it shoulder to shoulder with others. We will have our role, we will bring our gifting, our experience, we'll walk in the call that God has given us. But I want you to know the question we should be asking when we're seeking the voice of God, going into what is new and what is next. A question we should be asking is, God, who are you asking me? Who are you calling me to do this with? Are we doing it alone or doing it together? Question four, are we putting perspective over problems? And so we see that they actually have identified the problem, they come up with a plan, they make the inquiry, they get the answer, yes, and then there's this immediate obedient action. Immediate obedient action. I didn't even say that in the A-time, but that makes sense. 
But I wonder how a perspective change could have derailed that action. Because there's two ways that we can fall into a poor perspective as we look at a problem. The first way is self-disqualification. They identify the problem, they see the problem. The problem is our dwellings are too small. We need bigger ones. They could have disqualified themselves and said, we are prophets, we're not builders. They could have said, this is actually not our issue, our work, it's someone else's. But they don't. They say, this is the the purpose God has called us to, the ministry God has called us to, and so therefore we will go. It will be by our hands. We're gonna roll up our sleeves and get to work. Second trap we can fall into is we can look at the problem and then get overthrown by a lack of resource. Don't get it twisted. When they saw the problem, there was this holy desire that they would have more impact, that they would get bigger dwellings so that more could be done, more lives transformed, more people led by the voice of God. But at that time, there was zero resource. They had to go down to the Jordan and cut the wood down. We hear later they had to borrow an ax so they didn't even have the tools to do the job. The truth is, often we're not prevented from action because of of how big a problem is. We're prevented from action because we see the lack of resource. If I put on the table a million rand problem and I put a million rand in your bank account and said solve it, you wouldn't stress. But when there's a million rand problem on the table and there is a penny in the account, that's when our heart goes. We're not prevented from action by how big a problem is. We're prevented from action when we see a lack of resource to match it. It's a poor perspective because the perspective of these prophets were that even though that there is a big problem and zero resource, we know the source who has all resource to sort out the problem. We can never be a people who put the perspective over problem because otherwise the problem will run away with us. Last question is this. Are our tools borrowed and is our character sure? We get a picture of this random, anonymous, unnamed prophet. Verse five said, but as one was felling a log, his ax head fell into the water and he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. He gets to the work, the good work. He's got a borrowed ax. It breaks in the midst of working. The ax head falls into some water, sinks, it's heavy, it's lost. There's two things I wanna highlight about this guy. Two things that can show us about hearing the voice of God. The first one is actually a hindrance. The, The second one is actually a great help. The hindrance is this. I think what we can learn from this prophet is that calling is personal. When God calls you and me, he calls us personally, as we are. And the trap this prophet fell into, that many of us sometimes can fall into, is that when we move forward in the things of God and what God has called for us, we can never move forward on someone else's gift, someone else's tool. We can never move forward on someone else's blessing, someone else's skill, someone else's call. We can only move forward in the things of God with what he has placed in our hand. We don't move forward in the action of God with a borrowed ax. If God calls us, God equips us. He calls us individually, personally. 
And he calls us as we are. And whatever we need to achieve the goal, to do the work, whatever need we might have, whatever resource we might need, whatever gifting, skill set, he's the God who puts it in our hand. We can never move forward on a borrowed ax. Second thing that he highlights, and this is a great help to us, write this down if you're taking notes, character carries. We can't miss, in the midst of the obscurity here, the character and integrity of this young prophet. He could have moved on. He could have not drawn attention to the fact that this had happened. No one knew that this ax was borrowed. No one actually even would have seen it because literally they didn't know where it had fallen in the water. But he is the one who draws attention to it. And you can hear the angst in how he says it. Alas, it was borrowed. You can hear that there, there, is, a, there is a great despair in him that this was not his property. He was charged to keep, take good care of it and he hasn't. It's been lost. What he shows us in his character is that there is nothing that can beat integrity. That we can't put anything over that. Because he could have hidden behind, of, behind the anonymity of the event. He could have hid behind his giftedness, his position. He could have kept it all quiet. But we know this, giftedness can never replace integrity. We've seen this happen in church. We've seen this happen in leadership. How many guys are, are so gifted advance the kingdom, do great works of God, holy endeavors, and their character slips and the rug is pulled out. You can be the greatest, the great, have the greatest gift, you can have the biggest calling, you can have an anointing from the spirit that is just out of this world, but if character slips, it all falls apart. And I wanna tell you this, like, as as I've grown in ministry, I've been in full-time ministry for just over 10 years now. I remember being a young guy in full-time ministry. God called me when I was 15, 16 years old, told me, this is the plan. It's full-time ministry. It'll be ministry forever, and you'll lead churches. That's the plan. Go. And I remember being a young guy in ministry and wanting to pray this prayer because it was the desire of my heart, but it was a very similar desire to the desire of the prophets but I used to feel guilty for it. I would want to pray that God would increase ministry, that he would give me a bigger platform, that he would grow me into bigger things, more significant things, bigger spaces, to grow us in number. These are prayers we pray. And I used to feel so guilty, like, Lord, is this coming, is this like, is this bad? And one day God really just met me in that and said, hey, understand, when the motivation is not comfort or status or power or growth for growth's sake, when the motivation is actually impact to see people's lives transformed by my love, by my mercy, by my grace, that is a prayer to pray. And so I have always prayed that prayer. But he said, more importantly, there's two things you need to pray to make that happen. First, you need to pray for the leadership gift to carry it. And second, most importantly, pray for the character to keep it. And so that has been my prayer for ministry for the last 10 years. God, would you give me the capacity to carry it? But most importantly, priority above all, first thing, will you give me the character to keep it? Because if we don't have that, I, I could preach the stink, like preach the 
like the paint off the wall. But if character's gone, what does it matter? It can't carry it. This is where I want to wrap up. This obscure little passage gives us this beautiful picture, and it's a picture of who God is. It's a picture of the heart God has toward me and you, that he is the God who is in the business of recovering what has been lost. Verse six says, then the man of God said, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick. He threw it in there, made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. The passage ends with this most obscure yet beautiful picture of the gospel. A picture of the good news of Jesus. It's a picture of God's heart towards you and me. And I just want to say this as a sidebar. We can come to obscure passages like this, and I'm sure as you read it on the front end, you were like, where the heck is he going? How do you see, how do you see anything there? Can I tell you, when you come to Scripture, what, what we know is this, that there is nothing that has been done unintentionally. That there is nothing that has fallen by the wayside. God is not a God who waffles. God is not a God who, who just deals in fluff for fluff's sake. God wants to share his truth and he does it on every page, in every account, in every situation. When you get to genealogies in the Bible, can I tell you there's the gospel there. When you get to a random obscure passage in 2 Kings about an iron axe head that gets lost and then floats, it speaks of the good news of Jesus. Because from cover to cover, every single page, every single book, what you will find is consistency. It's why we know this was not written by man. This is God's word. Because there is consistency right across all the authors and thousands of years that it spans. The consistency that says God is all about recovering what is lost. And he does it by the power of his son. And so whenever you come to scripture, no matter how obscure, no matter how, how much we think this is, this is odd, this doesn't really matter, I would always question, does it? Famous preacher once said, you can drop me anywhere in scripture and I'll run cross country to Jesus. We're in 2 Kings 6. I wanna tell you I'm running cross country to Jesus. Because it gives us this picture of the God who cares. Elisha's gonna personify the heart of God that he doesn't just care for big things, he cares for small things. So he cares for an everyday situation like a, a, an ax being lost in some water. You see it in his heart for this prophet. He comes to him, he seeks him out. He sees the angst that he's in. He actually asks him, where, where did it fall? Points that out. And then he acts to recover the lost ax head. He does it to show that God is the one who cares for us, not just in the big, but even in the small. And so I want you to know, God doesn't just care about big things like your salvation. He cares about your Tuesday, Monday morning meeting. That God, as he is holding the cosmos together, he cares about your marriage. That as God is literally moving in creation, knitting it all together, he is also caring about that job interview you have this coming week. And so he wants to seek you out in the big things and in the everyday. He seeks out this man in the midst of an everyday problem, an ax that has been broken. But he wants to show that God comprehensively cares for you and me. Big, small, it doesn't matter. As the band joins me on stage, 
the picture of the axe head is so interesting because it's actually a picture for the weight of sin. It's a picture for what sin does to you and me. It specifically says it's made of iron. Again, nothing is by mistake. The reason it says that is because iron is, uh, it, the symbolism is quite clear. Iron is heavy. And so there's this weightiness and this heaviness to iron. And it's the picture of what sin does to our hearts, what sin does to our souls. It weighs us down. If you knew fishermen at this time, they actually used iron weights to weigh down fishing nets so that they could get a catch. And so the picture of the axe head being weighed down and actually being fall, and, and falling into this water and sinking to the bottom is a picture of us being taken out because of sin from the presence of God. That we are separated and we're driven to the depths of despair because that is what sin does. It weighs us down. It takes us to a place of punishment and penalty. It takes us to a place where we are separated from our God. We're separated from our purpose. Do you notice that the axe head came off? So it's literally like separated from uh, its original being, its original purpose. It's now useless. It's a picture for the weight of sin. But the weight of sin is met by the weight of glory. Because Elisha will take a stick, a piece of wood, and it's a picture of the wooden cross of Jesus. And when he throws that in the water, the weight of glory meets the weight of sin, and sin is changed. Quite literally to the point where the iron's characteristics, the iron's ability to weigh down is taken away. And an axe head will float and be raised up. I want you to know there's no power in the stick. There's no power in Elisha. There was no power in the wooden cross. There was only power in the one who hung on the cross and what he was doing, what he accomplished on that cross for us. Because he would pay a debt that we could never pay. And when the debt is paid, the weight is removed, the ax head is raised. When Jesus overcame death and was raised up to life, it meant that by you and me putting our faith in him, we too could be raised to life. And in the same way that we were weighed down by sin, where we were taken and drawn to the depths of despair, a place of punishment and penalty separated from the purpose of a perfect God, the weight of glory, the power of redemption saves us from that. And we're brought back into the presence of our perfect master. We're brought back into a place where we can be used by Him, purposed by Him to change the world. It's a beautiful picture of the good news. It's a beautiful picture of what is available to you and me. Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray. Jesus, you're the one who changed everything. Lord, even as I said, we know what sin does, it weighs us down. I felt there are those in this room who right now know what that weight feels like. Where we're so weighed down in despair that it feels like we're suffocating, drowning in it. But God, you're the God who recovers lost things. You're the God who seeks us out. You find the place where we sunk 
and you raise us up. And so by the power of your redemption, by the weight of your glory, Lord, would you raise us up again? Lord, would you remove the power of sin, the weight of sin? Jesus, I hope we don't miss that you're the God who never stops speaking. That as we are called to prioritize and seek your voice, we wouldn't miss that you are the God who pursues us, who is speaking your truth, your love, your mercy, and your grace over us every second of every day for all eternity. Would we be a people who tune our ears to hear your voice, to discern the message, and to respond in obedience, putting our faith in our great Savior, Jesus. Redemption is yours. Salvation is yours. The battle is won by you. Lord, you are the sure foundation that we can build our lives on. Lord, would you cast off all restraints? Would you cast off the weight of sin and how it can bear down on us? Jesus, would you lighten loads? Would you help us prioritize your voice as we wrap up a year and start another one? Lord, there's no power in the change of a calendar. There's power in tuning in to the voice of God. Jesus, would you help us see things from your perspective? Would you give us a godly perspective? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear as you promise us in your word? Lord, we wanna respond in honor, in worship. You're a good God. We love you. Let's sing together.